Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of That Anthro Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Jeff Hawley, a sociocultural anthropologist and an associate professor at UC Santa Barbara, comes on to talk to us today about his work in the field of environmental anthropology and specifically his work in Acre, Brazil. With all the research he collected in Acre, he even wrote his own book called Rainforest Cowboys, The Rise of Branching and Cattle Culture in Western Amazonia, a great read that I would highly recommend to all of our listeners, especially if this episode interests you. It really goes into more depth about the topic, Acre, the history, because Acre is such a rich history that really connects it to why the people have the relationship with cattle that they do now. And he does a wonderful, wonderful job about explaining that. But mostly today, he also comes on to talk about overall his work in the field of environmental anthropology, his involvement in the Ivy Ethnobotany Project. And we also talk a lot about his teaching because I've been lucky enough to have been one of his students. And I truly believe that he does a wonderful job of not only teaching to his students, but also asking them and encouraging them to create their own relationships with culture and environment outside of the classroom, which is something very valuable. And if this is your first ever episode of That Anthro Podcast, we release episodes weekly, Wednesdays at 10 a.m., and I am your host, Gabby Campbell, a third-year anthropology student at UC Santa Barbara, Welcome. I hope you enjoy the episode. And for more information, you can follow our Instagram at that anthro podcast or send us an email if you have any questions or want to be a guest at that anthro podcast at gmail.com. Without further ado, introducing Dr. Holly. Hi, Dr. Holly. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Thank you so much for coming to talk with me today. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you very much. It's a, I'm really excited to be here, and I think this is a great uh, thing you're doing. Happy to be a part. Thank, thank you. So I've been lucky enough to be one of your students, and I really admire your ability to not only teach about anthropology, but I feel like you also really inspire your students to interact with and evaluate their own relationship to culture and environment. And one of those initiatives that I feel like was really impactful was field exercises in your environmental anthropology class. Uh, So even with it being taught via virtual instruction, you still created fun assignments that asked us to safely and responsibly amid this pandemic examine our immediate environment, whether we were at home or quarantined in Isla Vista. So how do you feel like these exercises have helped provide a deeper understanding of the material you teach? 
Okay. Yeah. Um, so you're talking about uh, this, the most recent environmental anthropology version was remote because of the pandemic, as you mentioned. So I had to change a lot of things because the class always has the emphasis of trying to get students to think about their relationship with the environment, but also getting out there and um, learning more about uh, nature and the environment uh, in the local setting of Ivy, because students live there for up to four years and uh, or more, and they um, they 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 get in their routines and they be, and they don't really. There's a lot of things that they haven't sort of noticed, and so originally with when it was just focused on IV, we had like a scavenger hunt that would take the students from like the abandoned asphalt mines on campus to uh, different points of historical. Um, importance where there were little traces or hints of like things that used to be there that um, could, you know, so little things in the landscape that told a bigger story from times of Chumash habitation to oil extraction, other, all sorts of interesting things. So sure. the objective is really to get, to, to facilitate the deeper understanding besides me just telling students about it, but actually having them experience it. And so with uh, the remote instruction, I tried to adapt that and we had a few exercises i think you'd probably be better qualified to answer if i if i if it actually provides a deeper understanding of the material um the way i did it but uh i the 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 objective is uh, for regardless of where the students are for them to be to be curious and comfortable so so also acquiring the knowledge where they can be comfortable to pick different things that are edible or useful and 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 begin to engage with the environment on a deeper level I definitely think it was very impactful for me. It made me, especially during a time where I was staying inside more normally, it helped me get out and be, okay, this local park that I take my dog for a walk in every day, what of these plants are useful, medicinal, edible, mm -hmm. was really uh, impactful for me. So I definitely think it helped me connect more. Great. Um, and when you've taught this class in person, what's kind of the typical response to exercises like that? Do you kind of see students coming out of their shells or maybe changing their perceptions to the UCSB environment. I know there was one exercise where you have them uh, like try uh, fruit bearing trees or edible plants on the UCSB campus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one is, there, there's really like, um, you know, students tend to be very opinionated on the exercises. Um, a lot, so a lot of hear from a lot that really like them and a lot are, you know, it's about sort of overcoming that discomfort, the awkwardness, the, you know, the, the fear perhaps in many cases of, of actually touching Definitely. something and, and, and um, putting it in your mouth and, and having the sort of trust in the knowledge that this is actually what, it, what you assume it to be or that you've identified it correctly. So I think most students really do enjoy the exercises, but there's also, um, and, and most people who want to take this class, like this is a class that people want to be in it. Usually they're not really sort of taking it for a requirement. So uh, in general, I think the students really uh, enjoy it. And I think it's, it's, it's a strange thing where like I, a lot of students want, uh, they say they've wanted to do this sort of thing, but they just feel too weird or uh, they grew up with their parents sort of telling them, you know, don't eat that or you'll die. Um, or yeah. so it's, this is one thing I like about teaching the class is that I can, I can make it the assignment so that they can say, well, I'm doing this for a class, so I have to do it or whatever. Yeah. And then, but then it's just sort of is a gateway into a whole 
larger world because once you do that you begin to see them in like the costco parking lot or in even in students front yards like wow we have natal plums and i never knew that and um so in general i think that's one of the the, the better exercises um getting them out there because ucsb campus is full of of edible and interesting uh, species that have been brought from all over the world by vernon Cheadle, um who was a botanist um it's actually a living sort of laboratory that uh, professors like um, Bruce Tiffany use to teach uh, about uh, botany. Um, and so it's really a great sort of outdoor classroom. Yes, I definitely think that the hands-on learning is what we definitely need more of and trying to adapt it so that, of course, it's safe. and it's, But it really helps get, as a student, I feel that it helps um, – get me out and about and more involved with my own surroundings. That's something that Mackenzie and I spoke on was, you know, really connecting with your local community and having, having that basis. Uh, Do you feel like um, these exercises have influenced your own interactions with the environment and physical landscape of UCSB during your time teaching here? They definitely have. I mean, because I learned from students because, and this is uh, cross-listed with environmental studies and um, there's a lot of ES students who know way more about plants than I do and about um, uh, ecological processes and other things. So they're always, I, I'm learning new things. It leads me to, that's the great thing about plants that I've discovered is they, they, they give you something to talk about and to learn about. And there's a community of people who are interested in them. Um, it's just similar to like if you go bird watching or something, it, it, you begin to, to learn from other people, they tell you things, and it also generates these social relationships that I really value and had never thought of as being important. But as a result of this, like I asked the landscapers on campus, who are often kind of ignored, um, and uh, by students and faculty alike. But I've come to know them because I'm like, hey, what is this thing? Or I'll tell them, hey, you know, you can eat that. And or one of the landscapers that I've really become close with, he's from Mexico, and he tells me about like. For example, the natal plum, using it in um, uh, making jams and jelly and stuff like that. So it 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 provides me with so much, um, and I learned so much from it. And I think that the motivation for it was really because when I began teaching this class, I was talking mostly about my research in the Amazon, which is um, interesting, but it kind of promotes that exoticism of. I mean, I, I, I do my best to sort of mitigate that by the way I teach, but mm-hmm. I don't want to just give students the impression that there's these, there's nature way far away, like be it in the Amazon yeah. or Yosemite or whatever, but that the environment and nature, they surround us. Um, and if we are just sort of romanticizing and imagining that nature is being far away and wanting to sort of save or preserve or this sort of thing without any sort of knowledge of like what it's like to actually use something or to care about um, uh, or to experience that sort of tension of what it's like to actually get sort of dirty in the environment. I think it, it, it makes it hard. So I was trying, I'm trying to sort of help. Um, I wouldn't say all students are like this, but many students who grew up in a really urban environment without a great deal of contact with the, with the world, but who watch Disney movies and that sort of thing. And, and who, yes. who want to, who, who grew up loving animals and nature and having stuffed yeah. animals and reading about animals and all this. Mm -hmm. Um, but maybe don't know, like, don't feel comfortable getting out there. So this hopefully can provide them with that sort of stepping stone to getting out there more. But the next step would be to like caring and understanding because you have a deeper understanding of sort of environmental Mm -hmm. processes, then you, you know what the consequence of 
building that new apartment upstream from you know the place where you see the you've seen the frogs all these this time or whatever uh people become more invested locally and i think in a more general sense yes and then of course they're sharing that with their families which is hopefully you know disseminating the ideas even more and spreading them and even when you asked us to look at our own yard and what that says about you know what kind of plants we have the way it's it's landscaped and um, how it kind of relates to other yards in your neighborhood was really interesting because just the social and um, societal way that we have cultivated our space is very interesting and it's very interesting to examine. Um, has what is your favorite class been to teach? Uh, sorry, what what's your favorite class been so far to teach? I think it's this class because okay, yeah, the environmental anthro. Um, Yes, one fifty one and twenty fifty two. It's just because I've made it more what I wanted it to be over time. Like when I first imagined doing a scavenger hunt or having students go out and look for edible um, plants on campus, um, then you know I was like, "Wow, I don't think I that 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 sounds like a lot of risk, or that sounds like it yeah. could, students wouldn't like that." But I think. Um, I made the class into what I want it to be, where we read really interesting things about like uh, indigenous ecological knowledge, but also we read, um, you know, things that are of li literature and fiction and, and different uh, popular uh, sources and that sort of thing. Um, but over the years, I've, I've, I've become more comfortable making it how I wanted to be, like where the students can, you know, a couple years ago before it went remote, we the students uh, tried to create natural sort of disguises where they had hide from me on my way to class. And that was really fun uh, as well, because it forced them to kind of not only pay attention to nature, but to pay attention to like what Ivy, the pattern of Ivy, uh, which yes. is really, really sort of an overlooked thing or students wanted to like imitate juniper bushes, but they found out they were super sort of, <laughs> they really irritate your skin. Um, oh, no. But it, but it, but that talk about like sort of our local environment that's overlooked. It's really these institutionalized landscapes, like on campus or in shopping centers, or uh, that 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 we really really are comfortable just sort of totally ignoring. Um, but it was, it was it was interesting to see, and then we had the landscapers actually come and judge their costumes. It was really fun. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I definitely. I'm the next time I see a landscaper on campus, I'm going to take the time to stop and chat with them because that's you're right that's a great that's a great way to connect um yeah they really uh, and they appreciate it I, I mean they don't want yeah. people you know impeding their work like they they don't want to talk all day but they like being you, they, they, they appreciate being recognized and they do have a lot of knowledge because they've worked on this campus for a long time as well yeah um another project that you have kind you kind of created yourself was zormac <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> an alien transmitting messages to our class about his reactions to this new and foreign world. How did that start? How did Zormex start? And how you got your kids involved as well? How'd they feel about participating? <laughs> sure. Uh, so Zormex, that was uh, when we shifted to remote instruction. Um, you know, really, I don't even know. The decision was made formally, but, you know, like basically after the winter. So we had about a week or two to sort of, transition to remote uh, teaching and I was and I was thinking about like just talking into this box to students and never seeing them and it reminded me of being kind of an alien sort of floating a, far away from everything and 
and trying to understand it. And um, so I decided to sort of go with that of uh, creating a character to, to, to replace to some extent the sort of engagement I have with the students that's more fun um, mm -hmm. in the class. So Zormak, so yes, he's an alien and he talks like an alien or a robot kind of, I'm not sure. Um, and he just make, makes observations um, about sort of the curious things that he sees humans doing in the world, like, um, you know, creating these perfectly manicured lawns and that sort of thing. Um, and he, it, it turned out to be fun because my kids were also home and, and um, I didn't really originally plan. I, I, I was originally recording Zormek hiding from them, like in the garage, and the, <laughs> but they would always come in. And so eventually I just incorporated them into it. And so that made it a lot more fun because um, it allowed me to talk about culture and uh, sort of how humans become sort of, they, they gain knowledge um, and interact with their environment. And they brought a lot of ad lib things that I, well, basically everything, nothing was really scripted with them, but they, they brought a lot of knowledge. Like uh, when my son was like, but that's, uh, he, he, he saw this useful plant, sourgrass in the garden plot and I was like I my immediate response as a human was like that's a weed we should take that out but he was just saying look no it's another edible thing we can eat in there and so then Zormek begins to talk about sort of weeds and plants and what those differences are um but yeah they they liked well you, you saw the videos I mean they 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 participated to some extent I mean they, they mm -hmm. I had to edit out a lot so much but they uh, they really enjoyed it. I think um, my daughter doesn't let me talk like Zormek anymore, though, because it, it, she's she's really sick of that voice. <laughs> it probably prompted them to ask some questions, too, I would imagine. And uh, probably something that they will definitely remember. <laughs> Do you think Zormek will continue if in other classes, perhaps? I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I've still got the, all the all the, the costume and everything. And I I. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it would be good to know and look at my evaluations and, and see, like, uh, if, if Zormek was, was an effective teaching tool. From what I, I saw of the students writing, like, it was useful and it was kind of more useful in, like, sort of a, a, a you know, wow, our professor looks like an alien and is <laughs> talking in this weird way. And it's a serious, scary time. And that was sort of a relief um, yes, to some definitely. extent. Yeah. I, I definitely feel like this podcast, too, is a way that I want um, – especially online, but even in person in these big lecture halls, well, sometimes it can be really intimidating to try and connect with your professor who you just see up on the stage talking into a microphone. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, I think, and I think Zormek did this by breaking that down and being, oh, you know, no, he's a normal person too. <laughs> and he, you know, he enjoys talking about these things and breaking them down so that you're right, it is fun and it's more lighthearted and it's, it's that, uh, it's a different part of education mm -hmm. and it's fun. And so I think that too, with this podcast, hopefully people will listen and feel more inclined to, you know, ask you more and be more in, interested in your research and, you know, maybe yeah. hopefully look up, look for all your classes and then sign up for all of them. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. I think that it's a good point you're making and because that was the thing about teaching online. I, I didn't feel comfortable making the jokes I used to make in class. Um, because, you know, it was being recorded and it also like I, I would see how terrible my sort of humor was when I was <laughs> when it was being recorded and I had to look back at it before I sent yeah, it Yeah, you have but, to watch it back. <laughs> yeah. So with Zormek, it was like I could sort of outsource the humor to Zormek 
and also have a disguise so I could deny that it was me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's it's someone else. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm I'm really glad that I, I know I appreciated it and it, it made my experience in your class a lot better. So thank you for that. Oh, great. Um, thank you. Let's let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, you, I had the privilege to read your book, uh, Rainforest Cowboys, The Rise of Ranching and Cattle Culture in Western Amazonia, which I will make sure to link the book below for our listeners, for those of you that want to check it out, because it's really a good, it's a great read. Um, and it documents your work in Acre, Brazil, mm-hmm. or is it, it's Acre. Acre, yeah. Acre. Examining how cattle culture there developed. Uh, so how long were you did you stay in Acre and uh, what did your daily look life look like while you were there? Right. Yeah. It's cool that you read the book. Um, it was in your, you think you said earlier domestication class. Z- yes. Zoo archeology with Dr. Okay. Sarah McClure. Okay. Yeah, no, that the book um, is a result. I, when I had written the book, I'd been there about a year and a half doing research um, in the state of Acre in the Western Brazilian Amazon near the border of Peru and Bolivia. Um, and so the book is really motivated by trying to understand the main driver of, of deforestation in the Brazilian, in the Amazon in general, which is cattle raising. So forces cut down and pasture is planted and cattle are put on that land. Um, and so, uh, when the, the, the topic had been studied previously, it was mostly about kind of cattle are worth more than the forest and there's sort of an economic rationality to the process, but there wasn't anything about the, the, the cultural elements of what it means to own cattle and what cattle mean to people, um, which is a really rich tradition in anthropology in um, East Africa, particularly as well as India with the sacred cow. And um, a lot of anthropology has a lot of examples of just how deep these connections are between humans and their, and their, and their animals and, I wanted to understand what that, that cultural element. And so I spent a year and a half down there and I, I continue to go back every, every year when that's possible. Um, and I would work with different people who were involved in cattle raising to some extent. And those range from like large scale ranchers who had 5,000 head of cattle and ranches the size of Santa Barbara County to, um, uh, small, to people who used rubber tappers who used to rely on the forest primarily to harvesting Brazil nuts and tapping rubber. And so they would, they left the forest intact and they derived their, their, their living from the forest without cutting it down. So uh, they were shifting to cattle at that time, which was a big um, con- uh, sort of, it was all over the press in Brazil that these people who had, used to preserve the forest for now cutting it down and raising cattle, even though they used to oppose it. So I worked with these different groups that were raising cattle in different ways. But I also went to, you know, a lot of butcher shops to see, you know, where does this cow end up? I went to um, slaughterhouses to try to understand, you know, how does this cow that moves, you know, to that this rubber tapper family adopts, how does it move through this commodity chain and where does it end up eventually? Um, I went to barbecues just to see what it meet, what beef means. And I couldn't have avoided going to barbecues because there's such a crucial social event there. Mm-hmm. Um, but Chura- is it churrascos? Yeah, churrasco. Yeah, they churrasco. Churrasco. Yeah, they. So those are all um, Acreans and Brazilians in general um, eat uh, love beef. Um, and beef, there's really a stat- a hierarchy associated with different kinds of food in terms of 
what how much strength they give you uh, to, uh, you know, if you eat filet mignon versus a hot dog, what does that sort of say about you? So it's like about status. Um, trying to understand all of that. So cattle in a really holistic sense from the th- the thing that the forest is cut down for to the thing which is consumed to the thing which is on the feet of the cowboys and that holds up their pants with their leather belts and boots um, to the even the um, sort of perceptions that we have of the Amazon as a place of nature, um, as something we see on National Geographic, often without humans in it. And if we do see humans, they're kind of represented in a way of living in harmony with nature as indigenous populations or as destroyers of that area. So how do those ideas that we have externally also relate, uh, a sort of uh, influence the things that happen down there in addition to the demand that we have for things like soy and cattle that are directly and indirectly involved in this uh, industry. So it was, um, you know, really just uh, old school anthropology in the sense of looking at one thing and trying to uh, follow it where it went, um, trying to understand all of the different relationships and connections that were involved in this one animal. Did spending so much time there and doing all of that affect your own relationship with cattle and the meat? It did. I mean, I, I grew up in Texas and I, um, that was one of the things that helped me um, communicate and, 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 and establish some sense of understanding with people who raised cattle there. Um, at least I was not my, I was not like a rancher or anything like that, but mm-hmm. I grew up, you know, with the culture that was sort of the cowboy culture yeah, that was becoming strong there with like the same belt buckles and people called themselves mm-hmm. cowboys and they listen to musica country, like country music. So there was a huge, it wasn't, it was interesting because Brazil has gauchos, which is our, the gauchos of Argentina, I suppose are, is the mascot of UCSB, but Brazil has gaucho and vaquero and these different varieties of cowboys. But what you have in the Amazon are called cowboys. They call it so they're they're explicitly connected with this sort of U.S. model of the cowboy. They dress in that way. There's even like um, sort of the Copenhagen snuff that is produced in the United States. Um, Different things, elements of that, including the music, dancing, all that have been taken and sort of mixed with Brazilian traditions. and so coming from that world um, helped me to understand this topic and establish these connections because it's really not that easy to do research on these environmental topics when you're talking to the people who are the primary ones destroying the forest. They obviously yeah. don't want to talk to you. Um, and so that's one reason the topic hadn't been studied too extensively. Um, but the, the benefit of spending a lot of time there is people begin to um, trust you, establish friendships. But having coming from Texas and having that background um, helped me a lot, uh, and it helped me also understand the perspectives of people. This is a this is a place far away that I imagined to be completely different, but it wasn't terribly different from what I the small town I grew up in in Texas. And I, I understood the, the the sort of concerns that people had about um, this government or this these the Americans or the Europeans are telling me how to use my land. I could I could see. Mm-hmm how that would, uh, I mean, like probably upset the, the people I grew up with a lot more. Um, and, and they would like, I could totally understand sort of uh, people's um, perspectives. And I think that that, that that was really useful and helped me to get at that depth over time. Definitely. 
Uh, something else from the book that really intrigued me was all of the kind of personal stories that you included about maybe a, a particular person that you met and their connection to their specific cattle mm-hmm. um, and how some of them, you know, they were members of the, the, the cattle was a member of the family and other ones, they were just a means of getting places or, you know, getting to the forest for rubber tapping or ri- mm-hmm. kids riding them to school. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell, tell our listeners a little bit about kind of that, just because I know a lot about it, but I think, I think those relationships were really fascinating. Yeah. I think that's a, a big important part of the book. And I'm glad you um, mentioned that because it's like I say, I'm studying cattle and I'm trying to understand all these different connections. But first of all, you have to understand like this animal is used in very, very different ways by different people and the way that they use it um, is uh, results in these different ways of relating to symbolically and culturally to those animals. So you, if you have, for example, um, I talk about, you're talking about the, there are these little postcards from the Amazon, which were mm-hmm. these, these newspaper articles that I sent back to my, I sent these reports back when I was doing field work to my newspaper in Texas, because I wanted to sort of facilitate that understanding of like, yes, the Amazon is a very different place, but, and you've learned all these things sort of about it uh, that are kind of our projections, but let's look at like these different people and understand their, their lives as, as sort of human beings who have similar, who have similar concerns and, and life histories. And so, like, I talk about, for example, Bayana, this um, mm-hmm. a woman, a uh, grandmother who I lived with, with her family. Um, and she had, uh, you know, she had these two oxen that pulled her cart, right? So uh, she had those two oxen and then uh, the two oxen and the, she had 80 head of beef cattle, you know, that sort of grazed in this fenced in area above her house. And so she those two animals were the same sort of thing, but because of the ones, the, the ox, they were, they were pulling the, 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 the cart for her. They pulled this cart that carried like her supplies to and from the road. Um, she established this different relationship with those animals. And when she sold her property, uh, she sold all those 80 head of beef cattle without even thinking about it. And she kept the two uh, uh, bullocks, the ox, um, and made her her son promise never to sell them. And when we and when she and while all that was happening, she had a big going away party, and she bought another cow from a neighbor, which we ate at a going away barbecue. Um, and so you have like these commodified animals that are really just kind of like if you think about any sort of crop, like an almond tree or a uh, you know ears of corn, sort of walking around. They have a value. They don't have a name. You only know them to the extent that they are a problem. Uh, they're sort of commodified, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then those are the things that are cut up and put into these plastic, you know, containers. And uh, you don't really, you know, like kids go in, they don't really even know that this comes from an animal to some, uh, some in some instances. Um, it's just totally disconnected and fetishized and removed from the original context. Um, whereas when you, when you relate to cattle in this way that, um, as Vianna did with those two that pulled her cart, it's similar in some respects to the way East Africans or Indian agriculturalists use cattle. They rely on them to the extent that it, it wouldn't make any sense to eat them because that would be like eating your car or eating your plow or eating your, you know, your source of milk. Um, these things that provide something on a daily basis, you naturally establish these relationships with them as well. So there's that economic calculation as well as the fact that there's personal bonds 
um, established, you begin to, once you name something, you know, it's hard to eat it as well. Um, so I began to see something that was usually only reserved or talked about in like East Africa or India or these other settings happening in a very capitalist market oriented place. So it was interesting to see how these animals could be um, defined really and their uses determined um, by the relationships that people had with them. Um, and yeah, that, that, I think that's the benefit of a comparative analysis where you're not just looking at, uh, you know, the, 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 the ranchers with their beef cattle and their huge herds, but like different um, relationships that people have with cattle. Yeah, the different groups and examining what it means to each group. And mm -hmm. that was something I definitely think that your book captures really well. And uh, moving forward in your research, uh, are you still working with um, in Acre or do you have plans to do more things? Yeah, I'm still working in Acre. I, I didn't I was planning to go back this summer, but obviously it's not, not yeah. possible. Um but I still continue to, to work on cattle deforestation, that sort of thing. But also a lot of the things you see in the class um, with, for example, we talked about the yards and what is um, the, my sort of the, the state of my lawn sort of say about me as a person. Yes. How do people read vegetation if you have wild vegetation or, or sort of well-groomed? And how does that then relate to like the um, way that we groom or cultivate the body if you think of hair as sort of vegetation we talked about some of that in the class and I, I'm interested in these broader sort of ideas um, and ideologies of nature that people have because I think that when we think about our yards here in California there's there's an aesthetic component that we can't understand in this material or functional way that like it doesn't make a lot of sense and it especially doesn't make a lot of sense now to dedicate so many so many resources water chemicals, that sort of thing, to this, one of the primary sort of crops that we, land cover crops that we have in the United States. Um, and, and these aesthetic concerns are important in the Amazon as well. And so it's, it's in to get these, these, these aspects that, that don't really have a material sort of reason behind them. It's so um, these bigger ideas that we have of nature as being sort of dirty or, you know, if it becomes sort of, a, if your grass becomes a little bit sort of unkempt or your hair, what is this sort of saying and how can we kind of get at these uh, vestiges of, the, of cultural thinking that, that sort of privilege uh, really human domination of nature on the body and on in the, in the sort of environment in the natural world? How can we connect those things and how can we understand this broader system? So I think the Amazon is a good place for that because it is so important for the people who come to settle this area to really just uh, sort of control that landscape as much as possible and try to eliminate the forest because they could perceive it as a threat um, and it will take over their sort of vegetation or their sort of their crops. Right. But um, with time they began to see, well, no, that's, it's not necessarily like as black and white as that, but I think in the United States, we still have a lot of that sort of, uh, this sort of built in culturally and institutionally, such as on the UCSB campus with uh, sort of like, we have to make this landscape look very, very much like humans have shaped it and continue to mm -hmm. shape it. And that's a great thing about talking with the landscapers, for example, is they like around graduation time, they know they have to go and, and, and like get the grass perfect. And they're like spray paint in the bald spots by Henley gate with green spray paint and that sort of thing, because 
of that same mm-hmm. thing like if it's not a if, it, if the grass isn't perfect and that's what is well, what's is this university sort of going downhill what why, where's all my money going that sort of thing so yeah it's it's there's this need to reevaluate our the way we perceive and shape nature i think that you see in the amazon but also here in the united states so i like this new project that it allows to make that connection as well mm-hmm. um i think this is a good place to bring up uh, the ivy ethnobotany project mm-hmm. which we i touched a bit on uh, in the last episode but you what is your involvement with that and how have you know your own research interests are you trying to shape that and shape the isla vista community into understanding you know our environment more yeah thanks for mentioning the ivy ethnobotany project um this is uh, something that has kind of come along with earlier I mentioned how sort of making environmental anthropology into a class that I wanted it to be. Uh, you know, I can say you, can, you should go out there and find food and that sort of thing, but that's kind of irresponsible, you know, if I don't provide a baseline level of knowledge, right? I don't want people going out and picking mushrooms, for example. There, there's, there are certainly real dangers in the world. Um, so the IV Ethnobody Project is... Uh, basically just began with us mapping the useful things that we found around campus. We'd go on walks and sometimes we'd take a landscaper or we'd invite a landscaper, we'd invite a botanist to come with us and show us, for example, different species, native plants, uh, edible plants, tropical plants, these sorts of things. And we begin to uh, collect those and put them on the map so students could find out where they were, but also find, you know, uh, give them information like, Natal plum is eaten widely throughout much of the world. It comes from South Africa. It's eaten in Mexico. It can make jelly out of it. But if you have a latex allergy, you don't want to eat natal plum, right? Um, or, and also addressing concerns like, well, is it sprayed? How do we deal with reclaimed water? Or mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Trying to address all the questions that people had. Instead of just doing it piecemeal every time I made the assignment, I we decided to create a site and it's been really fun because a lot of the students uh, work on the project. Um, it's, it's really just something I, I, you know, sort of created the bare bones outline for and the students are the ones who filled it in over time. And so that's a really fun thing is walking around with the students, them bringing new knowledge, us finding things, them saying, Hey, we should talk. I want to focus on Sueno Orchard and the history. I'm like, okay, great. Then make a page or Chumash Ethnobotany. It's like people have sort of taken their own interests and enriched the site. And I, I think it's a great resource and I encourage people to check it out if they want to learn more because it's a, it's a, it's a good way in the absence of having my class uh, of sort of making that introduction into the, this broader world. Even just taking a walk and along your normal path seeing, I think, I agree. I think people should check it out. It's such a wonderful resource and thank you so much for putting it together. I'm also glad to hear that it's open to, to you know, to students putting what, what they've learned on there. That's such a wonderful resource. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming on today. I think that's all the questions that I have for me for you. But I want to encourage everyone to check out um, Dr. Holly's book, as well as if you're a UCSB student, consider talking to him or taking one of his classes. I'm sure that as things go a bit back to normal, uh, we'll definitely have more opportunities to do more things in person. And I definitely plan to have follow-up episodes with people and hopefully make that Anthro podcast even more of a community. So 
thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure.